The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Growing up, um, I was the youngest of five kids, and we were a very athletic family. And so much of my summers were spent going to my older siblings' baseball and softball games. And when I went to those baseball and softball games, I was not very interested in the game, and so often I would go exploring. And certain ballparks had a creek nearby, and I'd go and catch crawdads. Some, some ballparks had a huge, huge mound of dirt, and so I'd go play king of the hill with the other kids. I remember one day, I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, we went to a ballpark that was far away that we had never been to before. And on outside the right field fence, there was a levee. And a levee is basically a big hill, about 20 feet in the air, that goes as far as you can see. And the purpose of it is that when the Missouri River would flood, that it wouldn't flood the whole valley. And being a young, curious boy, I decided I'm going to go see what's on the other side of that levee. So I walked up the road that, that led over the levee, and I got to the top, and there was a warning sign. It said, no trespassing. You would have had to been blind to miss it, okay? Well, I looked around, and the land was pretty barren, and there wasn't anybody around. And so I thought, you know what? What could it hurt? And so I started to voyage into that forbidden territory. And as I was walking in, all of a sudden I heard, hey, you, what are you doing? And this man came zooming up on a four-wheeler, and he began to chew me out, and I remember just how scared I was. I can't remember, as I was trying to recall back, I thought he had a gun, but maybe he did I don't know. But I remember the blood draining from my face, sitting there like a statue, because I was so scared that this guy was going to kill me. And he said, didn't you read the sign? It says, no trespassing. And I stood there, just lifeless. And the only thing I could think to say was, I can't read. (laughs) I don't think he was fooled. There was a sign up. It was a warning to keep out no trespassing. But when I saw that warning sign, I took it as a suggestion. Something to consider if it doesn't inconvenience me too much. You know, we look at God's word, and we look at the warnings in God's word, and so many times we take them as just mere suggestions. If it's not too inconvenient, obey this, do this, be warned by God. Some of them we take very seriously, but some of them we take very casually. Let me give you an example. You just take the Ten Commandments, for example. Do not murder. All of us would say, yes! Do not murder me, right? Do not steal. Yes, do not steal from me. We're all in agreement on that. That is a good law that all of us should keep. But then God says, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And we say, whoa, 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 let's not get all legalistic, right? Let's not go too far. Or it says, honor your father and mother. God didn't know who my mom and dad would be. Not sure if that applies to me. Do not covet. Well, 
I'm not sure I'd call it coveting. I just kind of want what they have. You see, we, we have some of God's laws that we take very seriously and some that we take very flippantly, that we treat as mere suggestions. And so the question I have today is how should we respond to God's word? All of it. How should we respond to his law? How should we respond to his warnings? How should we respond to God's word? Today, our instructors, sadly, are not the Israelites. Rather, it is the Ninevites. If you would please open to Jonah chapter 3. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 774. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1101. Just a recap, we've been going through Jonah this summer. In Jonah chapter 1, God commissions, I'm sorry, God commissions Jonah to leave Israel and go to Nineveh to proclaim his message. Jonah doesn't like it, and so Jonah flees, and through a, a, a series of providential events, Jonah repents, returns to God. In the beginning of Jonah chapter 3, we see that Jonah is recommissioned to go to Nineveh and give this message that God has for them. Last time, two weeks ago when I spoke, we looked at the beginning first five verses of Jonah chapter 3, and we see that Jonah was recommissioned to go on an impossible mission to this enormous city with a big God to give a simple message of coming judgment. This week, we're going to see how the Ninevites respond to that message. So let's read together. Jonah chapter 3, we'll start in verse 4. And read to the end, verse 10 of Jonah 3. Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your holy, inspired, inerrant word, it is the message that you have for us today. It is by your providence that we are here, that we would be here to hear this, God. Lord, pray that you would work in our prideful, stubborn hearts to respond in a way that is glorifying to you and good for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So how should we respond to God's law? How should we respond to God's word? 
how should we respond to God's warnings? Well, what we are going to see on a macro scale today on how the Ninevites responded to God's warning, we must respond on a personal level, following the same things they did. And so I want to look through their response to God's warning and see what it might mean for you and for me today. First, we see we should respond to God's warning by fearing God's fierce anger. Look at verse 4 with me again. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Notice the immediacy of these people's response. Jonah walks into town and he says, 40 days and you shall be overthrown. They do not wait 39 days to repent. They do not wait until the king gives an edict. Immediately, they respond to the message. They knew that God's displeasure, his judgment was imminent. It was a serious matter and they responded quickly. And then in verse 6, we see word spread. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Upon hearing the judgment of God, the king of Nineveh did not defend himself. He did not pull out his armies or say, God, we are a good city. Look at all the good things we have done. Rather, the king puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. And then he commands every man and woman in the kingdom to do the same. Don't miss the gravity of this king's response. The king of Nineveh, the biggest, baddest city in the Assyrian Empire. The king of the most arrogant and ruthless and powerful city potentially in the world. Hears the word of God. And he removes his robe. He removes his robe and trades it in for an itchy, scratchy, humiliating sackcloth. The king exchanged purple robes and gold and gems for a apparel of grieving and mourning. He was making a public declaration of conviction, of humility, of fear, and reverence before a holy and awesome God. The people, the king, feared God's fierce anger. God's message to them was, yet 40 days and you will be overthrown. This word overthrown is the same word you spoken of, what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, complete annihilation. It is a message of judgment from God. And then in verse 9, the king says, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king, the Ninevites, understood the ugliness of their sin. They understood the holiness of God, and they understood that they had offended him. And they rightfully acknowledged that it stirred God's anger. And so they put on sackcloth, and ashes, and grieved over the dirtiness of their sin and this destruction that they merited. Probably the most famous and most transformational sermon in American history is a sermon by Jonathan Edwards that he preached in July of 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. And it was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Edwards used vivid imagery of hell and what it would be like for those who suffered God's anger and punishment. He awakened the people with an awful weight of sin, the wrath of an infinite and holy God, and the unexpected moment when God would execute his justice. And in that sermon, Edwards says this. He says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. This is a message that we have lost in our culture. Jonah doesn't exactly come to the Ninevites and say, listen, God has an amazing plan for your life. No. What is he doing? He is warning them. He says, when you sin, you sin against the holy God, and it makes him angry. It stirs his wrath, and it will bring his judgment. Even the psalmist recognized it when it said, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, many times we treat sin very casually. We do things that we know God does not want us to do. And because he does not strike us with a bolt of lightning, we think that he is okay with it. But we must never, never mistake God's patience with God's permission. We must never mistake God's patience with God's permission. God is not indifferent towards your sin. He isn't. God hates your sin. It angers him. Your sin is treason against a holy God. Your sin is Adultery against a jealous God. Your sin is an offense against an awesome God. And so when we read of the warnings in Scripture, we must fear God's fierce anger. Secondly, we must call out for God's undeserved mercy. Look at verse 7 with me if you would. The king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. This was probably uh, 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 from sunup to sundown. It was a fast. And the purpose of fasting then as it is now is to commit yourself to a time of prayer, to go urgently before the Lord and cry out to him. And so in verse 8, he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily, to God. Could also be translated, call out urgently to God. This wasn't a matter of delay. Verse 9, he says, who knows? This is an expression of hope that, that maybe their, their, their future holds something different than what they've merited. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice once again, The king does not list out his religious heritage. He does not talk about all the good things that he has done. He claims no innocence at all. They are under deep conviction of their sin and the righteous wrath of God. And so all they can do is cry out for mercy. And they can only cry out to mercy to the Lord because the Lord is who they have sinned against. And the Lord is the one who will execute his judgment. One of my favorite, what I think is one of the most helpful illustrations of mercy is the story of a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. 
The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice, and justice demanded his death. The mother replied, but I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon says, but your son does not deserve mercy. And the woman cried, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, said the emperor, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. The same God that we have betrayed is the same God who grants mercy. It's the same God that we must cry out to for mercy. Once we recognize God's fierce anger towards our sin, once we acknowledge the depth of our sin, once we understand how completely unable we are to pay God back, once we understand that we have to repent of our repentance, because even that is filled with sin, once we realize that we are totally unable, it is only then that we will resort to crying out for mercy. That's what the Ninevites did. That's what we have to do. We must cry out for mercy, and we cry out to a merciful God. Did you know that never in the whole scope of human history has a person ever cried out to God for mercy? Not once have they genuinely, humbly said, Lord, I am a sinner in your sight, and I have nothing to bring, and I cry out for mercy. Never once in all history has God turned that person away. Never once, and never again will he, for those who cry out for mercy and look to Christ for their salvation. Never once. And so when we see God's law, when we see his warnings, we must fear his first anger. We must call out his undeserved mercy, and we must obey God's holy commands. Responding to God's word shouldn't just be in words or in thought, but in deed. Faith moves us into action, into obedience. Repentance isn't just a change of heart. It is a change of life and a change of behavior. Because we are aware of the presence of God. I've heard stories of people who do this. I never have. But um, sometimes if you're driving down the highway and you are going a little quicker than you should. Again, never done this today. And... um, and up ahead, you know, between the highways, there's those little U-turn things that you're not allowed to do U-turn. And, and in that, you see a police officer, right? What's the first thing you do? You slow down. You step on the brakes. You ch- check your speedometer because the eyes of the law are on you, right? The eyes of the law are on you, and you want to make sure you're obedient so you don't suffer the consequences. We have an ever-present God who is ever before us. If the eyes of a police officer would cause us to obey the state's laws, how much more would the acknowledgement and understanding of God's presence cause us to obey his laws? Verse 8, the king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Violence was a major part of the Ninevite culture. We've shared stories about it, but just to remind you, the Ninevites used to take their enemies and they would skin them alive. They would cut off their noses. The trail leading up to the city of Nineveh would be lined with skulls to warn people coming in of their ferocity, of their violence. Violence was a badge of honor. It was a method of manipulation. It was where they found their power. 
violence was their identity. But then God comes and he issues this warning. And the king says, this changes everything. This changes everything. No longer continue in violence. Again, the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then we know that they do indeed turn away from their sin of violence because in verse 10, we read that God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil way. There's a saying, maybe you've heard it, quorum Deo. It means living before the face of God. When we live before the face of God, before his very presence, Did you know God is here right now? Did you know that God is in your car on the way home? Did you know that God is in your cubicle with you? Did you know that God is with you at 2 a.m.? We live before the face of God. And this causes us great terror because we know he is a holy God, but it also causes us great joy for those who are in Christ because we trust that God is no longer against us. We do not fear him as executioner, but we fear him as a loving, heavenly father. When we know God, when we know the gospel, our heart's desire is to obey God's law. It becomes a love of our life. There's a quote from J. Gresham Machen who says this, the gospel does not abrogate God's law, but it makes men love it with all of their hearts. Can I ask you a question? What is What is your respectable sin? What is that thing in your life where you say, you know what? If you're like me, you maybe say this. I'm a pretty good person. I just have this one area of weakness over here. But the rest of me, the 99% of me, that's good. It's just this 1% that I really struggle with. What is is that for you? Maybe it's violence. Uh, Maybe maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's, it's greed. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's... Whatever it is, you you know what it is. If you don't, ask a friend or your spouse, they can tell you. Did you know that God hates that sin? It angers him. Whatever specific sin there is in your life, whatever secret sin, whatever, whatever sin that you treasure, that you refuse to repent of, God is calling you to put it to death to turn away from it. I hope this is a community in which you can share with people, I'm struggling with this. I need your help. I need your prayer. I need your accountability. God hates your sin, and he calls us to do the same. And so when we hear God's law, when we hear his warning, we must fear his fierce anger. We must call out for his undeserved mercy, and we must obey his holy commands. Finally, and thankfully, we must experience God's sovereign repentance. Verse 10, read along with me. It says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Could also be translated repented, relented. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This verse raises a couple questions that I want to address quickly. First question is this, does God repent like we do? 
Many passages in the Bible says God does not repent. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says God will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Psalm 110, verse 4 says the Lord has sworn and shall not repent. And so what does that mean here that God relented, that he repented? Well, the term used here is the Hebrew word neham. And this word is really used in a variety of ways throughout the Old Testament. And it most commonly refers to God and his relenting or his grieving over something that he had done. And so when the Old Testament speaks of man's repentance and man's turning away from sin, it uses a completely different word. It uses a word shuf. And this word talks about repenting of sin, turning away from sin, and turning to God, turning from evil and turning to righteousness. And this word is never used of God because God does not have sin to turn from. And so when it says God relented or God repented, it doesn't mean that he is turning away from a miscalculated decision or a sin in his life. The second question I want to talk about is this. Was God uncertain of the Ninevites' response? Did he adjust his plan based on their unforeseen response? Did God go with plan B because they twisted his arm into it? 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. You know, when we look at Jonah chapter 3, from our perspective, when we look at it, we think God has changed his mind in bringing judgment upon the Ninevites. That the Ninevites have followed this protocol, and God has changed his mind because he was bound to do so. But when you take it in the context of the whole book of Jonah, we see this was God's plan from the very beginning. Do you remember he called Jonah? How willing was Jonah? Not at all. And yet God was persistent to get his message to the Ninevites because he had something to accomplish. God did not need to come to the Ninevites and tell them that he would wreck them, that he would wipe them out because of their sin. God would have been just to, 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 to do it without any warning at all. And yet he comes to them and he warns them through this disobedient, rebellious prophet Jonah because his plan is to rescue them from their sin, to rescue them from the judgment that would come upon them. And so what does this mean for you and for me? It means this, that when God proclaims judgment, that when God proclaims warning, it is a proclamation of mercy. It's a proclamation of grace. He would be completely justified to let each and every one of us continue into destruction, but he comes to us to warn us of the destruction that is ahead if we don't turn to him. There's a story in 1969 in past Christian Mississippi. There was a group of people who were preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of a storm called Camille. With the wind howling outside the apartment complex, a police officer, Chief Jerry Peralta, pulled up sometime after dark. And the, the owner of the apartment comes out onto the deck with a drink in his hand. And the police officer warns him, the storm is getting worse. It is coming. You are going to die. You need to leave. And as more people gathered on the porch, 
the man said, this is my land. If you want me to, if you want me off, you will have to arrest me. Well, he couldn't arrest the man. And so he went down and he took down their names and their next of kin. And they laughed at him as he did it. A few days later, there was a news report that the front wall of the storm had come in. And that when the, when the wind came in, it came in at up to 205 miles per hour, the strongest in recorded history. That raindrops were like bullets. That there were waves off the Gulf Coast as high as 28 feet. And the news reporter said, in past Christian Mississippi, there were some 20 people that were killed at a hurricane party. These people had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. This warning from the police officer was a warning of mercy and grace. Get out of the path of destruction. Leave this place or else you will perish. You know, we look at these people and we say, these folks are idiots. Why wouldn't they leave? How arrogant, how stubborn are they? But is that not exactly what we do when God warns us, when God commands us, and we ignore it and take it as a suggestion? We may not be able to see the hurricane of God's judgment and wrath, but it is coming. Today, God, out of great compassion for you, is warning you and warning me to turn away from our sin and turn to him because judgment is coming. Let me end with this. The Ninevites had 40 days before the judgment of God came upon them. How many days do you have? Could be 40 days. Could be 40 years. Could be 40 minutes. None of us know, right? We do not know when judgment is coming. We don't know when we will stand before a holy, awesome, and righteous God who is not indifferent towards our sin, but hates our sin and punishes every single one of them. What we do know is that that time is coming, even though we don't know when. And my prayer is that we would hear God's gracious warning, that we would cry out to mercy and turn to him. There's a story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. He says, the poor man named Lazarus died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And he, the man in hell, Lazarus, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them. See, he understood warning was a gift of God's grace when he was in hell. He said, Go and warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, now listen closely, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses 
and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, which indeed Jesus would do later. Do you hear the warning? You don't need a miracle. You don't need to have an angel come upon you. You have Moses. You have the prophets. You have Jonah issuing this warning to you. Do you fear God's fierce anger? Call out to him for mercy. Call out by looking to the cross. You know, at the cross is where justice and mercy kiss. At the cross is where we see the justice of God, the wrath of God. At the cross, we see how much God hates your sin. But at the same time, we see how much God loves you. We see his steadfast love that he would pour out hell upon Christ, on his own son, that you never have to endure it. Cry out to mercy. Look to the cross. Trust in Christ as your Savior. Know that Jesus took on your punishment for your sin, which God hates, so that you never have to. Cry out to mercy. Turn to him that you never have to experience God's wrath, but for all eternity get to enjoy his steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this heavy message today, but it is a message that you have put in your word for your people, God. Lord, as I, as I think about the context of this passage, the Ninevites listened to these warnings, but the Israelites did not. You sent to them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they turned away from your holy commands and your warnings, God. Lord, let us not be like the Israelites, but like the Ninevites, that we might see the depth of our sin, that we might repent and turn to you and look to the cross, the place that reminds us of your hatred of sin, but your love for sinners like us, God. Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know you, God, pray that you would draw them to yourself in powerful ways, God. Lord, as we turn to your supper, Lord, we pray that these elements would no longer be common in our mind and in our hearts, God, but they would be a reminder of your wrath and your love mingled at the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.